Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, Eleanor. I'm Michael. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Oh, one question. Where am I? Who are you and what's going on? Right. So... You, Eleanor Shellstrop, are dead. Your life on Earth has ended, and you are now in the next phase of your existence in the universe. Cool. Cool. I have some questions. Thought you might. Michael Schur, creator of The Good Place, is here with me to answer all of your burning questions about life, death, and most importantly, comedy. It's The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. For this week's show, we're taking you inside the brand new office of the man who not only wrote and produced The Office, but also created Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and The Good Place, which will air its highly anticipated series finale at the end of this month. Even though you may recognize him as Mo Schrute from The Office, Michael Schur isn't quite a household name. And yet he's directly responsible for some of the funniest and most popular comedy of the past two decades, starting with his first ever TV job as a young writer for Saturday Night Live. Along with Adam McKay and Tina Fey, he wrote some of the best political sketches during the Will Ferrell as George W. Bush era. We talk about all of that, including the endgame for The Good Place and a possible future for The Office on NBC's new streaming service, Peacock. Quick note before we get to the good stuff. If you like this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. You can also go to ratethispodcast.com slash laugh to rate this podcast wherever you listen. Now, let's get to my conversation with Michael Schur. Well, thank you for having us in your office. You're welcome. You said, You're the first people to be in this oh, office. Oh, wow. So you just moved offices. Just moved next door to where I was before, and uh, it's a lot nicer in here. Yeah, you well, can't tell because it's messy, <laughs> but it's a lot nicer in here than it was in the other one. Was there a reason for the move, just uh, changing it up? Or um, There were several. Uh, the My old office had a, uh, I would call it a vermin problem, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and <laughs> it just was old and beaten up. Yeah. And sad. And they were redoing this one. And I was like, hey, I have an idea. What if I move in there? (laughs) (laughs) Also, uh, here's a side note. So when I moved into that office, they um, I I got mail for Brett Ratner all the time. Oh, that's not fun. Oh, cool. I have nice mail or it was like it was like a lot of (laughs) auction catalogs and like stuff like that. And uh, I once got an application for a uh like a home equity loan and i was like ooh i could apply for a home equity loan for for Brett Ratner <laughs> and then like give all the money to rain or something like that and then i was like well i'll probably go to jail for fraud so i shouldn't do that <laughs> but then i so i told everybody like my joke for a long time was uh yeah, I have Brett Ratner's old office. They they wanted to find someone whose like vibe was the most similar to Brett Ratner, <laughs> so they put me in there. And I told that to everybody. And then um, I ran into this guy who's been on 
at Universal for a long time. And he was, and he was like, oh, you're in Brad Ratner's old office? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you know who had that before him? And I said, no, who? And he goes, Bill Cosby. <laughs> like, cool. So needless Real to say, when the, when the opportunity came to move, I, uh, I jumped at yeah. it. Yeah, and hopefully a new couch too. <laughs> yeah, new, <laughs> just new, new mojo, new everything. <laughs> Um, so, uh, we are here about a couple weeks before the, uh, the series finale of the good place is about to air. That's so right. how are you, how are you feeling as this time in your life is kind of coming to a, to it, a close? Endings are hard, um, emotionally, but I feel good. I, uh, you know, we made the decision after the third season that to bring the show to a close and, there have been many days since then where I I've felt sad about that, but I've never felt regret, which I think is the key. I was I was worried that I would feel regret, mm-hmm. but I haven't, and up to and including this moment now. So <laughs> that is uh, that I feel good about. Like I, it was the right decision. I'm happy that we did it that way. I think the show ended the, the exactly the way we 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 were in a very rare way able to execute the show from beginning to end exactly the way we wanted to. So any complaints are entirely my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was uh, your decision to, to end it after yeah. four seasons. That was kind of, uh, it wasn't coming from the network that they said you know, wrap it up. It, it, not at all. It was us. Um, I, I, after the show got picked up for season two, which was a good indication that it would be a viable concern going forward. I immediately started thinking about how long it should last mm-hmm. and I talked about it with the writers for all of season two and all of season three. And the, the, the initial thought I had was, I think it's about 50 episodes. Mm-hmm. Like it, the show from the beginning has moved very, very quickly and chewed up a lot of story. And I knew that it wasn't a sort of like, let's see how long we can make this mm-hmm. last kind of show. And and somehow, like the the number fifty just stuck in my head, which would have been about four seasons, and um, and I got to the end of season two and still felt the same way. And then in season three, I really started thinking about it as we broke out that season, mm-hmm. and um, and it just seemed like yeah, like that was the number, like it it just that's how long the story should be. And so when season three ended, I made we spent all of season three doing gut checks constantly of like is this the right pace? Are we moving too quickly? Are we moving too slowly? And then by the end of season three, it was like, yeah, this is it. So told the network, told, told the cast and, um, and headed into season four, knowing that we were in the official sort of end game. And that was very freeing. And, um, when I first pitched the show, I, one of the first people I pitched it to is Damon Lindelof. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, um, like, what are my, what am I worried about? What should I be worried about? What are the pitfalls here? Yeah. And he said a, a number of things, but the one that really stuck with me was like, when you're doing a show like this, if you don't know where you're going, you're in trouble. Like if you're, <clears throat> if things are like open-ended, mm-hmm. that's when you um, will sort of run off the rails. Yeah. Do you think he was speaking about that from personal experience? He was, <laughs> and he, as he, he said he was yeah. like, you know, and, and I think if you look at lost specifically, the the time the period of time where like they seemed like they were at sea is the same time the audience kind of drifted away a mm-hmm, little bit mm-hmm. and then once that story came out i think they in my memory at least they were the first people to do this they were they went to the network and were like we need to yeah, end the show yeah, that's what... and it and as soon as they made that decision the show just 
started mm-hmm. it, it felt like it did at the beginning where yeah. it was like no one were, had really done that before like canceled their own show essentially yeah <laughs> and and what a bold thing to do yeah. for a show that is an international phenomenon mm-hmm. yeah. you know um and so he was he was just like you just always have to know where you're going yeah. and so the the we we will have gotten to the end of this four year long project without ever not knowing where we were going. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge relief. Yeah, I do think Lost is obviously a very, it's like a, a line in the sand in that way, but also in the sense of the type of show that it is and the way that fans interact with it. And it is this kind of difference between an old model of TV, which you've spent a lot of time in, yeah. where it's like, it's just, we like hanging out with these people at the office or, you know, in Parks and Rec, yeah. um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, and so you obviously, you know, made a conscious decision to do something different with this show. So yeah. can you talk about going back to the beginning, um, why you wanted to do something so radically different from what you'd been doing before that? Well, partly just because it was different. Like I, you know, when Parks and Rec ended and Brooklyn was up and running, Dan Gore was fully running Brooklyn at the time. And, um, and I was sort of like, all right, what's next? Um, I, you know, I sort of thought to myself, well, there's a, I could do the same thing. I could try to come up with a premise that amounts to, a collection of goofballs in an office and mm-hmm. um and i could try to hang out with those goofballs as long as um it it was economically and creatively viable and that's a really fun way to live like yeah. as a writer there's nothing wrong with that but i had just done it that's the only thing i'd done mm-hmm. I'd, i started on the office out here and then it was parks and rec and then it was brooklyn and um it just had been at the time it had been whatever 10 or 12 years mm-hmm. of the same formula and so it was pure um just like creative expansion or something mm-hmm. it, yeah, that's all it was it was like i maybe i should try a different kind of show yeah um and that there's nothing behind it other than other than that and and i there were other versions that i thought about like i thought about a family show mm-hmm. because um at the time the the people running nbc had were really keen on trying to like nbc isn't hasn't been known recently for family shows right. it's been mostly workplace shows and they were really intent on trying to find a family show that worked um the problem is is that i'm a white guy from suburban connecticut and i don't <laughs> think there's really anything that interesting about my yeah. family yeah and so that I every version of that that I that I can could conceive of as being something that I could authentically write was real boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a there was no, and and in general I think I feel like at this point in the history of television like the white family has been pretty mm, it's been done. It's pretty pretty well explored. And then this premise which had been floating around in my brain for a while kind of kept kept bubbling back up and usually that's a sign that it's something that you should focus on so um that was really the that there was something more complicated about the decision than Mm -hmm. that and i think nbc did kind of jump at the idea of this higher concept thing too because that's also was kind of becoming a a trend yeah when you started this it was and 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 tv has expanded its palette even in the network world to allow for big ideas like this and i've said this before but when I was considering this premise, um, Last Man on Earth had been on for, I think, at least one season, mm. maybe two. And it gave me a lot of hope because it was like, that's a network show. Yeah. And that's a wild premise. Like, yeah. that is not a weird premise. show. Weird yeah. show with like a really big idea behind it mm-hmm. that 
um, that was that existed and was successful and people liked and it was on Fox and so uh, yeah it I think that it was the sort of right idea right place right time for a number of different reasons ranging from the way in which network TV like even this this new era of TV had even expanded into like traditional networks to allow for it uh, for something like this to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the casting from the beginning because I think that's just so essential to a show like this. That yeah. You have a, a cast that, that works. Um, and I know you, you worked with Allison Jones, right? Who's kind of the, the all-time great comedy casting uh, director. I would um, agree with that, yes. So what was, the, what was the process? Who was kind of the first person that you got on board and who was the, maybe the hardest person to, to cast? Um, the Ted and Kristen were sort of simultaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, I pitched uh, I pitched the show to Ted first, and um, you know, before going back up for a second, before I felt confident that I could write the show, I I came up with the idea for the world and for the the basic premise, but then I felt like I should pump the brakes and. I felt like I I couldn't commit to writing it until I understood what where it was going. Mm-hmm. Partly because of those Damon's words ringing in my ears, but <laughs> yeah. but also just because everything I've worked on before this has been pretty low-fi in terms of the premise. Like that's how I was taught by Greg mm-hmm. Daniels was the premise should be kind of boring because mm-hmm. if the premise is boring, it allows the characters and the plots and the dialogue to shine. And so the office is the least is the lowest five premise in history mm-hmm. intentionally. And parks and rec is a little more premisey because it's a slightly weirder world, uh, slightly less kind of known world, but it's still people in an office. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and Brooklyn is a little more premisey, but it's still people in an office. Yeah. And so I didn't feel like I could commit to writing this show until I understood long term, like way out where it was going. Mm-hmm. And so I had the idea for the concept and then I had the idea for the twist of the, uh, at the end of the pilot, which was mm-hmm. uh, in the, the pilot, which is that oh. she doesn't belong. Mm-hmm. Eleanor is there by mistake. And, and was then, the twist from the end of the first season there though, from the beginning? That's that, that's when I committed to it. Like mm-hmm. I, I thought it out and I was like, okay. And I sort of mapped out where I thought it could go. And I thought, well, maybe in the in the, some point late in the season, um, Eleanor who has become a better person, you know, volunteers instead of like running and trying not to get caught, she just comes clean. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. But, and that, but it wasn't until I was like, Oh, the whole thing is it's no exit. It's, yeah. it's, um, it's actually a, like an experiment that I was like, okay, now I get it. Cause mm-hmm. now I know what season two is. Right. It took me a while to figure it out, but just now as we were all fighting and yelling at each other and each one of us demanding, we should go to the bad place. I thought to myself, man, this is torture. And then it hit me. They're never gonna call a train to take us to the bad place. They can't, because we're already here. This is the bad place. After I had all that, then I went to Ted, pitched it to Ted, um, told him, I was like, this is gonna take a long time to explain, but like, <laughs> you'll understand why and pitching the entire thing. And he uh, was very uh, interested and asked me a bunch of really, really smart questions. And- um, What did he want to know? Well, he had he approaches everything um, in like the purest sort of like, what am I doing 
kind of a way. Like as an actor, what am I doing? And so he, what the first thing he said was, I totally get why this is a great story. I totally understand why the, the narrative over the course of the entire season is sort of captivating and this twist is wonderful mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. But he's like, the problem is, is I'm, when I imagine playing this role, I imagine it might be hard for me because I'm ju- I'm playing one thing. Mm. The the thing I'm playing over and over again, episode after episode after episode, is I I described it to him as like you are a um, you you designed a, a a like the Taj Mahal, and then someone comes to you and says like there's a structural flaw in the Taj Mahal, <laughs> and he doesn't know where it is, and so he's just wandering from room to room searching yeah. for the structural flaw. And he was like, I just, I'm worried that I will be doing that for too long. That, yeah. that, that, that attitude of like, where's the problem? Where's the problem? Um, is just, it's, it's too much of the same thing. And in the, as he was saying that I had two thoughts, number one, he's totally right. And number two, the event that I had imagined happening late in the year, which was Eleanor saying, hi, I'm the problem. You're looking for me. Mm-hmm. Instead of that being the second to last episode, that should happen right in the middle. Like mm. if, that, if that happens in the exact middle of the season, two great things happen from that. One is he gets to change his attitude completely in terms of what yeah. he's playing. And two is this entire plot like, like turns on a dime and suddenly he's like, um, what the audience will see is what do I do about this? Like I have this, this has never happened before. I don't know what to do. And also then you can play the idea that he is like, well, maybe I, she deserves to stay here. Maybe I should fight for her. (laughs) And all of that stuff will make the eventual twist even juicier because Mm. then you can say, well, everything was going perfectly in his experiment up until that moment. And then it threw him for a loop and retroactively it'll be so much more interesting. So he asked a bunch of questions like that about like, how do you execute this? How do I execute this character? How do I Ted Danson execute this character in a way that the audience finds interesting, which is a wonderful thing to pose to a, to a, to a writer. So he was interested immediately and it was like, okay, this is going to work. And then like very soon after that, I pitched the whole thing to Kristen and she asked me a bunch of really interesting questions. <laughs> uh, and, but the, the best moment of the meeting with Kristen was, she said, who are you thinking of to play Michael? And I said, Ted Danson. And she went, <gasps> like, got so excited because it turned out they were friends. They'd been in a movie together. Uh, like yeah. she was obsessed with him. She checked into hotels under the fake name of Arthur Frobisher, which was his character <laughs> from Damages. Like they were, they had just done an escape room like the week before <laughs> together. Like they turned out they were like best friends, yeah. which I had no idea yeah. about. Oftentimes in my experience, when, um, when ideas uh, get momentum, part of what gives the momentum is this weird sense that the universe is kind of lining up mm-hmm. to help you. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge sign for me that I was like somehow magically yeah. on, on the, the right, right track. Yeah, the right you track. Know? So they signed on very quickly. And once they were in, NBC was like, whoever you want. You're like <laughs> Once you have Ted and Kristen in yeah. the show. It gave you maybe more freedom to cast uh, lesser known people in other hundred percent, yes. And, and um, it was very, the whole thing was very smooth sailing. And like you said, when you have Allison Jones looking for people like that, you get the very best people mm-hmm. that exist in the world. I mean, I, she really is. I, I talk about her... Um, in such glowing terms that it's uh, it, she she is embarrassed by it, but she deserves it. She and her a partner Ben Harris deserve all of the praise in the world, and 
the the best way to explain how good they are is I have a sort of deal with them where I say, I'm going to give you the descriptions of the characters as I imagine them. Um, and if we find actors who don't a hundred percent fit those descriptions, that's fine. I'll change the descriptions of them. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm so much less interested in magically finding the exact person to fit the initial conception of the character in every way that I am with getting the best people. Is there an example either from this show or from past shows where that happened? There's many in this case, in the good place case, um, I said, okay, here's the deal with Tahani, um, South Asian, but with an Oxford British accent, like raised in England, like a member of England, high society, British high society has to be tall because it was very important in the design that she had to be like, if, if Ellen, Eleanor was going to be jealous of her yeah. and Kristen is not tall mm-hmm. and it was very, very important to me that Tahani be tall. And I described her as South Asian Grace Kelly, like, but British, that's yeah. what you want. Right. And I was like, but again, if, if this, if this actress is, is um, East Asian and tall, that's fine. Yeah. If she happens to, if she's Peruvian and tall, that's fine. Whatever the, whatever, wherever her national, or ethnic origin is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mu- the important things are tall British accent. Yeah, and then magically, Allison goes, "Well, here's a South Asian actress <laughs> who has an Oxford British accent, who's really tall and glamorous and beautiful and really funny, who has never acted before. Here she is." <laughs> and and Jamila, um, Jamila was the exact image in my head. Yeah, and so it that's the magic of Allison and Ben is mm-hmm. they they either find exactly the person you're looking for, or if you're not really looking for any one specific person, they find you 50 great people. Yeah. And, uh, Darcy Carden as Janet, obviously a huge find as well. Yeah. And she's had a really incredible kind of breakout performance and career out of this. Um, and that's, a, I mean, that's an example of a part I imagine that really could have been anyone because it's not a, <laughs> it's it, not a human. It it's not, could be anyone to the, to the degree that we saw, the age range of the people we saw for Janet, um, I'm, I, I've gotten this wrong before, but I believe the age range was 13 to 65. <laughs> uh, all genders. Um, at the time, the, an actor named J.J. Toda, who's now Josie Toda, uh, uh, auditioned and was amazing. Um, there were, um, I don't know how many, probably like eight women from ages um, 21 to 55 Mm -hmm. and probably eight men from ages uh, 13 to 65 who were on the like what you would consider to be like the short list and uh, that was wonderful I mean it was it was it made it really hard because when you when you open the range that wide you are there's a I'm a huge second guesser <laughs> of my own um, decision making and that was like second guess city um but then like Darcy just like kind of won the audition like when we did the callbacks and round after round after round like every time I saw her I don't know what it was I don't know how to describe it but you know when Janet started uh in the in the beginning of the show the point of Janet was just like extremely pleasant and helpful person mm-hmm. And Darcy in real life is an extremely pleasant person <laughs> and they just, her vibe was right. And yeah. in, in that's why Janet ended up being Darcy looking like Darcy. Yeah. But then she ended up having to do so much more than that. Yeah. Well, that was another thing that I was like, I, I kept saying to her early on, 
like don't worry yeah it's not gonna be this boring there's more interesting (laughs) stuff yeah but um ted had a funny comment after we did the episode in the third season where darcy played everybody Mm. ted was saying that like when at the beginning of the show he was sort of thinking in his head like poor darcy like she doesn't get anything to do (laughs) and and then like you jump two and a half years later and she's literally the only person in the episode (laughs) in the episode yeah that's great a high neck sleeveless I suppose this outfit will do. Are you sure? I mean, wearing a floral print to an infinite void at this time of the nothing? So where are we exactly? We're not on Earth, right? That's correct, Cheaty Janet. You're not. Your real bodies dematerialized when you entered my void, and your essences reconstituted themselves in this form. Cool. Cool. And when you say void... Oh, I mean a subdimension outside of space and time at the nexus of consciousness and matter tethered to my essence. Does that help? It does not help. So I want to jump ahead to this season, um, which, so I know you, you want the, the finale to speak for itself, and I haven't even seen it yet, so I can't right. speak to it. Um, but we can talk a little bit about this season. Um, and the the end of season three, beginning of season four, introduced some new characters. Yeah. Um, new humans who are being tested. Uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about them specifically. I, I really enjoy the the Brent Norwalk character, who sure. really feels like he's like of the of the Trump era in some way. He is. Um, so, can you just talk about where that came from? Well, um, you know, the original uh, concept involved kind of trying to pin down four types of bad behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, Eleanor, for Eleanor, it's it's selfishness. Um, for Tahani, it's sort of glory seeking or fame seeking. Um, mm-hmm. You know, doing things for the wrong reasons. Um, for Chidi, it's it's a paralyzing indecision. And for Jason, it's just sort of like low level crime. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we did the same thing when we invited these new people in. We sort of thought like, well, we ought to do four new versions of of bad behavior. Um, not even bad behavior, but just flaws, like human flaws, right? Mm-hmm. So Simone, who's a pretty good person, uh, has a very specific flaw, which is she kind of forms snap judgments of people. Mm-hmm. Like she's a very smart person who's a, who's like a literally a brain scientist. And so she kind of assumes that she f- has figured you out after not yeah. very long. and Not very open-minded. Not very maybe. open-minded and kind of like pretty, pretty secure in her initial read of people, mm-hmm. which is a which is a problem because people are multivarious and layered. Um, and then, you know, uh, Chidi was Chidi. Um, <laughs> and uh, John, who's the, the, uh, the, it was like sort of gossip columnist. And like he made his, he was a person who like was constantly just kind of um, snarkily commenting on people mm-hmm. and, and like, kind of focusing on other people's flaws to mask his own yeah. insecurity. That's a, that's a pretty familiar trope, but the one, and those came after like a, a, you know, lengthy decisions about human frailty and human foibles mixed with like, well, the bad place is choosing these people specifically to irritate mm-hmm. the original four. Mm-hmm. So John's foibles would have driven Tahani crazy. And, and Simone was obviously there to uh, make Chidi go crazy. And then we were sort of like, well, it doesn't have to be one-to-one necessarily. Mm. And there is a type of person in America and the world right now (laughs) that kind of drives a lot of people crazy. Yeah. And that's what Brent is. This is a disgrace. I accomplished something. I wrote a novel. And now my integrity is being attacked. 
I've been called racist, sexist. I don't have a racist or sexist bone in my body. I am Brent Norwalk and I'm a good person. I'm in the good place, you ever heard of it? And I'm here because I deserve to be here. I'm here because I earned it by being the best. Ugh, you're ridiculous. Yeah, and you're a condescending bench. How would you describe him? Uh, I mean, Eleanor at one point says, born on third base, thought he invented the game of baseball, which has a nice <laughs> twist on, you know, the, yeah. the phrase is born on third, thought he hit a triple. But he's, it's that, the attitude of like, I deserve this. Mm. Like, I'm, he was born, uh, he, he hit the lottery, right? Um, he was born white and male in America to a wealthy family. And if that is your... You ha- he had no control over that. Mm-hmm. That's just what happened to him. Those are the circumstances under which he entered the universe. And it put him immediately in the top tenth of one percent of all humans on Earth in terms of luck. Mm-hmm. And I read this book um, called Success and Luck. Uh, and uh, I can't remember the exact title, but it's like Success and Luck and the Myth of Meritocracy. Mm-hmm. And it was written by this social scientist at Cornell I believe whose name is Robert Frank. And he, he is a guy who was playing tennis with his friend and had a heart attack. And his friend called 911. And as it so happened, two ambulances are reported to a car accident like one minute away. Mm-hmm. And because two ambulances had reported to that accident and they only needed one, the other one was able to peel off and get to the tennis court and, and the EMT saved his life. Mm-hmm. And he woke up and he realized he had a a revelation, which was everything that happens in my life starting now is the result of luck. Yeah. And that made him formulate a sort of theory that people drastically underrate the level that luck has played in their lives. Mm -hmm. No one wants to think of himself or herself as lucky. They want to think of themselves as as hardworking, smart, capable people who earned what they have. Right. And it's a very good book, and um, and it was sort of the in some ways the basis for Brent, or it sort of put a name uh, or a label to this quality that people have, which is they don't want to admit that a lot of this is just luck. Mm-hmm. He was born white, male, and rich in America, like that. Yeah. I was born white, male, and not that rich in America. <laughs> My family was pretty modest. Yeah, still very up. lucky. <laughs> I'm still in the top three tenths of one yeah. percent of luck of all humans on Earth, mm-hmm. right? So. So that's the that's the infuriating thing. That's the thing that you see so often amongst white, predominantly white men in America, mm. but some white women too, is they're not there. There's no sort of um, there's no uh, admission that no matter what they've done in their lives or accomplished in their lives, that they that the the underlying bed bedrock of their existence is luck and mm. good fortune, and they're not grateful for it, and that blows my mind. Like yeah. as, uh, and so Brent's like Brent's whole attitude when he arrives there, and and Ben Koldek did such a good job of yeah. this. You know, when he first shows up, he immediately launches into this monologue about how it's maybe it's good that he was dead because there were some women sniffing, there's some reporters <laughs> sniffing around and talking to some women who have worked for him and he can't even make a joke anymore and everything's so PC yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And my, you know, I'm not racist. I, my dentist is a black woman and blah, 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 <laughs> blah. And then he says, well, wait, where am I again? And Michael says, the good place. And his reaction is, oh, good. Yeah, yeah right. That makes sense. Like, it, yeah, yeah. It's a, every, yeah, it's, of course I am. <laughs> and then 
when he starts to feel like maybe he doesn't, there's something indicating that he doesn't belong there. He doesn't think I'm, it's because I'm not such a good person. Yeah. He thinks there must be someplace better someplace than this better, that I yeah. deserve. <laughs> so that it's in really, if you had to boil it down to one word, it's entitlement. Mm. He just feels entitled yeah. to the the world. The world is, is there for him. He's yeah. the protagonist. In and I think the show's asking the question, is someone like this, uh, Ultimately, redeemable. yeah, redeemable, which it's not entirely clear for a while. Well, um, the, and yeah, yeah, that was the key was like when we designed this character, like we did not want to tell a story about um, about how like all all people like that need is X and then mm. they'll be fine like that. It is they are the hardest people to um, to deal with on Earth. And they are <laughs> and and we um, I mean, I don't want to give anything away. There's a small moment in the finale that indicates like, yeah, he's, it's still, uh, he's still working. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's not, it's not, uh, there it's, I don't want to, I'm not interested in redeeming him. Mm-hmm. I'm really not because people like him, uh, don't often see the light. And mm-hmm. so I, we didn't want to tell a story that see, that was like Pollyanna ish about like, well, all you need to do is explain to them yeah. that you, you, all they need to do is if the, the scales can fall from their eyes and then they'll suddenly become good people. Like, that's not my experience with people like mm-hmm. that. It's mm-hmm. not most people's experience with people like that. And so we kind of didn't really pull that punch. And I'm glad we didn't. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a punch that should be pulled. Yeah. Um, another thing that got introduced kind of late in the game is uh, the Good Place Committee uh, led yeah. by Paul Shear, which I also find uh, hilarious, that whole thing. And that, to me, reads somewhat as a critique on the other end of the spectrum of kind of overly PC liberal kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's, so not a, it's not a mistake that they're all dressed like <laughs> hikers from Oregon. <laughs> so, so where did that come from and how did you decide that that, that, that is would be? Born, <laughs> that was born out of a general frustration about... Um, people that you might consider progressive or liberal uh, who are... He has a line that I really love in the episode that airs tomorrow mm-hmm. where um, they're in a negotiation with uh, with Sean. And Sean is not only not actually negotiating, but every counter offer he makes is worse for them and yeah. better for him. And at one point, Paul Shear has this line where he says, like, you know, he's right. Sean says, I'm making an offer. You're not even going to negotiate. And Shear says, you know, he's right. The only reasonable thing to do is to keep giving up things unilaterally until this demon is happy. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, it that's that's like a it's the most sort of overtly political, I think, that we've yeah. gotten. And it's a it's just a straight up frustration from that what i see on the part of democrats in congress and in other in other uh, local governments where the it's this sort of like um the like we are going to be not just we're not just going to be reasonable like mm-hmm. people should be reasonable generally speaking we're going to overcompensate and give um just g- concede we're just going to concede yeah. a bunch of stuff because that that's not being reasonable like conceding all the things that you care about and that you want to fight for unilaterally is not being reasonable. It's being stupid and it's, <laughs> and it's, and it's actually like betraying your own value system. And I, and it drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. And I, you see it with things, for example, like when um, Michelle Wolf, I think made a joke about Sarah Huckabee Sanders's smoky eye look. Mm-hmm. 
And in incredibly bad faith, Republicans made a huge deal about it. And they're like, how dare you? Yeah. This is outrageous. I mean, meanwhile, like there's children in cages yeah. and stuff, right? Like they, they, <laughs> they, it's, not a, it's not an equal offense mm-hmm. on each side. And also the joke itself, if you actually read it, wasn't yeah. actually... It wasn't about her appearance. It wasn't about her appearance yeah. at all, right? But a bunch of Democrats were like, you know what? She's right. Like, she's this is a not called for, and she yeah. and Michelle should apologize. Yeah. And it was like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you're like the, there. There is a there's this weird impulse that that progressives have sometimes of like of like let's be not just reasonable, but um, but overly solicitous mm-hmm. of the other mm-hmm. side. And even when you even when they're very obviously saying things and acting in bad faith let's uh, let's go along with it because mm-hmm. that's because that puts us on like some kind of moral high ground yeah. and it and it doesn't help it mm-hmm. does not help it does not achieve anything it it uh, it and it, it could and you don't win you don't get anything from it like yeah. you don't they the other side doesn't suddenly go like oh well thank you that's nice of mm-hmm. you and now we're going to be reasonable back like it doesn't work that way it's a one-way street so yeah that's the good place committee is just like my <laughs> personal frustration with with that aspect of progressivism Coming up, Michael shares how his experience ending Parks and Rec informed the end of The Good Place. So looking ahead to the the end, um, you know, you mentioned endings are hard and you've had experience with them um, on uh, specifically The Office and Parks and Rec, which both had, you know, big finales, series finales, a lot of people were paying attention to and, you know, worried about. And these these shows are so hugely popular still. Um, So how did you... Think about did those experiences ending those shows inform at all how you went about ending this show? For the record, I wasn't around on the office oh, okay. when the office mm-hmm. finale happened. You were um, in it though. I was in it. Yeah, thank <laughs> you for remembering. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, I was not at all part of the decision making on the uh, on that show. Um, I mean, I remember talking to people who were there, and and I know how hard it was to. I mean that that ending that the documentary had aired and mm-hmm. that it had affected um, the way that people behaved in the office and stuff like that, that we were talking about as early as like season three. Like oh, wow. we, it was always a question on that show of when should the documentary air? Mm-hmm. Um, and Greg Daniels rightly pointed. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, like the second it airs, everything changes. Like mm-hmm. you can't, and so he, I think he very smartly waited until the last season. But yeah. so, um, so I don't, I don't know what the mindset was with that show and the finale. Um, Parks and Rec was hard, um, 
for for all of the reasons you would assume something would be hard like that uh but also we had sort of primed our pump um by doing a thing at the end of the previous season where we jumped ahead mm-hmm. three years mm-hmm. um sort of like inspired by Battlestar Galactica at the time which they didn't they did an episode where like they found a new planet you solely pushed in on a character and then pulled out and it was a year later which yeah. I thought was so cool and revelatory and we basically ripped that off. <laughs> um, but we had that had sort of primed our creative pump uh, in terms of how we were going to mm-hmm. handle the finale. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we knew even then. Uh, we didn't know at that moment, at the end of season six, exactly what we were going to do. But having done that, when we were planning the finale, we thought like, well, we've already done this thing where we leapt into the future mm-hmm. a little bit. And it was really fun. And it sort of gave us this little creative spark. And... So the finale sort of creatively emerged naturally out of that mm-hmm. decision. Pushing further into the future. Yeah. And seeing and, where and people end up. And- exactly. And like, and the idea that like the, the main theme of that show was like the effect that you can have on people, the sort of ripple effect you can mm-hmm. have by just intervening in their lives in these small ways. And so it was a short leap from that thought to the idea that like, oh, this, this is a story about Leslie doing one more thing for the parks department and then mm-hmm. seeing how she literally in that, in the finale, like, makes physical contact with yeah people. actually i just wa- rewatched it yesterday just because why not it's fun <laughs> um and <laughs> so uh it, it did occur to me she's she touches everyone and you see into their future and i and when i first saw it i assumed this is what's really going to happen to all these people but then this time watching it it did occur to me maybe this is what she's imagining for everybody we didn't really explicitly say yeah. one one or the other but um i, I think you're supposed to mostly believe that it is a glimpse into what mm-hmm. happens. Yeah. Like uh, that was the intent. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff that happens is a little ambiguous. There's a moment where Leslie and Ben are attending Jerry's funeral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a man behind them who appears to be some kind of secret, uh, secret, service. S- secret service agent. Um, but it's unclear whether if that's true, he is there for Leslie or Ben. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. We, we left some stuff deliberately ambiguous, but the general idea was that you get to see what happens yeah. to everybody. Um, and so, I don't know, Different. every show is different. Every show has a, its own sort of like set of themes and ideas and stuff. And I, I think the most important thing I took from that was like, man, this is hard and you really got to think about it. And mm-hmm. so we, we put a lot of time into thinking about the the um good place finale and it it took a lot of hard work from yeah a lot and of because people. of the nature of the show i mean you can't do i would imagine the same type of thing that you that, you, that these other shows did which which is about more like let's see where these characters end up and and it's just it's a bigger it's, it's a, a bigger thing than that <laughs> yeah it is and and also like the themes of the show are are very like intense like mm-hmm. it's not um it's not like i wonder whether leslie when becomes the governor yeah. like it's it has a bigger kind of it's after a bigger fish and so it it took a really long time and it uh i think we got it right i hope we did mm-hmm. um we'll find out <laughs> <laughs> um so the the final season a lot of it has been about this idea of creating a new afterlife so you've obviously had to think a lot about that throughout the series and, and then especially as you do the end. Um, where where are you now in, in your own thinking about the afterlife and what, what happens after we die? And has, oh, it, has it changed based on, on all of this experience that you've had yeah, studying it? I don't know that I had a theory before the show. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm not a particularly religious person. I don't, I, I, my sort of pat answer from, from, for a very long time, I was been like, I don't know. I mean, yeah. who, how, who, who could possibly yeah. claim to know? Um, I think that ultimately my, the, the things that have changed in my personal worldview have less to do with what happens after we die and more to do with what matters while we're on earth. Right. And, yeah. and the show has given me this and all the, all the annoying reading that I did and that other writers did has given me a better and more clear kind of worldview about like what matters, like why, why do we, what are the things that, we do that we should do what are the things we do that we shouldn't do why shouldn't we do them or why should we do them that kind of stuff i think has changed for me mm-hmm. um not like i used to think it was cool to like rob banks or something <laughs> and now i don't but more like why like what what's the what are the underpinnings of mm-hmm. of why actions matter or don't matter and um that is a joy like that is a really enormous gift that this experience has given to me is like I feel like I'm not flailing around trying to put a uh, put a words or an explanation to what I believe about why human w- what humans should do with their time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I now can say like, well, here's why. Here's yeah. why it matters. Like, here are the here are the philosophical underpinnings of human behavior and actions and and morality and ethics and stuff like that. It is also like you become if you read enough of this stuff and think about it enough, you ever you become cheaty. Like you become <laughs> like paralyzed with yeah. the, the simplest moral calculation becomes an agonizing. Yeah. That's why I remember when the show came out because uh, Michael's character is named Michael. Everyone assumed that it was based on you. Sure. Now, do you think you you have more in common with Cheedy after after it's all said and yeah, done? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Michael is actually named Michael because my wife and I went to Paris for our ten year anniversary, and we went to Notre Dame, uh, sending sending positive vibes to yeah. Notre Dame now. Yeah. Um, and there's a stone relief over the main entrance, which is St. Michael, whose job was to measure people's souls mm. and decide whether they got into heaven or hell in the Catholic tradition. And um, at the time, I didn't have a name for that character yet. And I was like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. Mm. Call him Michael for that reason. And it's been a, this four year long uphill battle to tell people like, no, I didn't, it's not an <laughs> ego thing. I didn't name him after me, but enough people have said like, it has to be named after you. Yeah. Right. Cause he's kind of a showrunner yeah. in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, he's pulling the strings, he's pulling the strings he's, and yeah. he's actually kind of writing the scenarios mm-hmm. of the, and uh, so many people have said it that I've actually had moments where I'm like, well, maybe I did kind of name it. <laughs> <laughs> <Maybe they're> right. <laughs> uh, so looking ahead, I mean, now that this show is, 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 about to wrap up what is there anything that you have you know coming up that you that you really want to do next and how maybe has this experience informed what you might want to do next um so before this show even started i ran into ed helms on the universal lot who i'd worked with on the office and we were like we should do something together because mm-hmm. i love him he's a wonderful guy and um i had a lot of fun his character on the office andy bernard was from Connecticut and I'm from Connecticut and he was like a, he was like a, a real sweet spot for me of mm-hmm. like a certain kind of Connecticut prepster that I grew up with and um, another guy who had some entitlement <laughs> some entitlement <laughs> yeah. problems um, but he and I over like four years have developed the show together that we're now beginning called Rutherford Falls it's oh, going to be on Peacock the new NBC streamer 
um, next year and it just got off the ground. We're just meeting with writers mm-hmm. for the first week this week. So that's the sort of next thing I'm working What's on. What's the kind of uh, general premise? Of it's that um, it's yet another character with entitlement issues. Uh, it, it's the the basic premise is that he is a guy. His name is Nathan Rutherford, and he lives in a town called Rutherford Falls in upstate New York that's named after his family. His mm-hmm. family is like a Mayflower family. Um, he can trace his lineage back, you know, hundreds of years and. There's a statue of his great, 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 great grandfather in the middle of the town. And he's very, very invested. His entire identity is based on his last name and his family lineage and history. And he, in the pilot episode, the statue is sits in the sort of roundabout in the middle of this road. It's a small town. It's, you know, 8,000 people or whatever. And because it sort of si- it sits in this particular spot because that is the spot where his grandfather stood when he founded the town in 1638 mm-hmm. or whatever it was. And uh, but because it's in this sort of like weird median, um, drunk kids uh, in uh, teenagers are constantly crashing their cars into it. <laughs> and eventually the mayor of the town is like, we got to move this statue. It's like a public health hazard. And he's like, you can't that's the spot where he founded the town. Mm-hmm. Like history matters. Things matter. You know, details matter. And it, it, he sort of digs in his heels and that decision kind of leads to this long domino effect of, of things that happen in the town and to him and his friends. Um, and his, it's a lot about, um, the exciting part for me is it's a lot about, uh, native American issues. Like there's mm-hmm. his best friend is a native woman. There's a fictional native tribe, in the town and um and so when he is like history matters you know like (laughs) these details matter he his friend and other natives in the area are a little bit like oh yeah does it yeah (laughs) whose history yeah exactly so um it's really exciting like there are four native writers on the staff and Mm. the cast is going to be like half native actors and um it's a like a whole new it's a it's a new sort of like experience to to like investigate that aspect of america Mm -hmm. um so you know i it's it the idea was very organically sort of grown um with me and ed and this woman sierra ornelas who i worked with at brooklyn 99 who's co-creating with us and running the show and so that's what's next and you know i as to what i learned from this show like i think you learn a million things from every show Mm -hmm. you work on and I don't know if there's anything in particular, but mm-hmm. I th- it will be that show will be much more serialized, um, yeah. similar to uh, the way that mm-hmm. Good Place was serialized in a way that like Parks and Rec and Brooklyn and yeah. things like that weren't. Yeah. Uh, so what I want to do now is uh, go back a little bit to the the beginning of your career and kind of go through some of the credits that we didn't get to talk about and just if. Uh, memory or, or story pops out uh, that you want right. to uh, hit on. So um, I read that you, the first thing you did read of college was writing for Jon Stewart in some capacity. Yeah. So um, I interviewed at SNL, read out of college and didn't get the job. But Steve Higgins, who was the producer of the show, is old friends with Jon Stewart and had run his show on Comedy Central and sent my name to John as like this, give this kid something to do. <laughs> and John was writing a book at the time called Naked Pictures of Famous People. And for literally no reason, um, John decided to pay me actual American currency to pitch him ideas for this book. It was like a book of comedy pieces. And over the course of like, I don't know, six months, I pitched him 
liked a hundred ideas. I think he used like sort of like one third of one of them mm-hmm. and paid me $3,000, <laughs> which was the most money yeah, I'd ever seen nice in my life. <laughs> it was, yeah. Like uh, every, like every year, um, at some point every year, I think like I should really send John another uh, email <laughs> and thank him for, <laughs> yeah. for letting me pay my rent. Um, that was my, that was my first professional writing experiences was pitching ideas to John, none of which he used and he paid me money, which he did not need to do because I didn't give him anything usable. But yeah, that was my first job. And, and then he credited me in the book, uh, and spelled my name wrong, which was, <laughs> which I was like, this is perfect. That's great. <laughs> um, so then you obviously did end up at Saturday Night Live. Um, you joined the writing staff in, I believe, 1998. Yeah. Um, so what was the, what was the kind of culture of the show like at that time when you, when you joined? And- so that cast was like Will Ferrell, Sherry O'Terry, Molly Shannon, Anna Gasteyer, Chris Kattan, um, Parnell and Jimmy Fallon came in right after was me. Was Adam McKay still head writer? McKay was head point? writer. Yes. Um, McKay and Tina had just been promoted mm. to co-head writer when I got there. Um, and, uh, they were in like that cast was in like their maybe third year and, mm-hmm. and like had kind of like settled in and the show, the show is like a sine wave. Like it, it has like upswings and then it has like down periods and it has upswings. And, mm-hmm. and we were at the beginning of a sort of upswing. It really kicked into high gear the next year when Will started playing George W. Bush mm-hmm. and yeah. Daryl Hammond started playing Gore. And, so, and then that crazy election happened and, um and like suddenly like every, like things you wrote, dumb sketches you wrote were suddenly being played on CNN yeah. and, and everywhere. I always think about that because the, you know, there's this idea that the, the outsized influence of SNL on politics and that actually, you know, the way that Bush and Gore were portrayed had some effect on the election. Oh, do, you, totally. do you buy into that? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's not even conjecture. Like mm-hmm. they've said it did. Like yeah. Jim Downey, who, you know, is the most famous and best writer of S- at SNL in its history wrote all of those debate sketches and, you know, strategery was mm-hmm. the thing everybody remembers. But then, uh, but there was an actual news story that Gore's staff, um, you know, the, in the first debate, Gore was sighing a lot and yeah. he was audibly sighing and it, it came across terribly and Gore's staff showed him Downey's sketch and was like, <laughs> this is how, this is how you came across. Like yeah. you've got to change. And then he came out in the next debate and was very uh was a lot more sort of under control and bush had been a moron in the first debate and then in the second debate he came out and had clearly just like they had drilled facts into his brain (laughs) yeah and then Downey wrote a second debate sketch which isn't as famous but i think was maybe better where bush is just casually name dropping the names of like every (laughs) leader in zimbabwe or whatever and um and Parnell, who is playing the moderator, has a line where he says, gentlemen, um, I, I'm going to uh, like it's my belief that for this second debate, you are I have been either highly, uh, highly trained or something. And there's a shot of Bush and then there's a shot of Gordon. He says, or highly medicated. <laughs> <laughs> and like those. Yeah, those three debate sketches that year were three masterpieces of mm-hmm. the genre, I think. And so like being being a part of that like being a part of SNL in an election year, especially a crazy election year Mm. is a really wonderful and crazy experience. I wrote a, and then the election happens and the world is in chaos. And I wrote a sketch with like three other people that, um, where it was just Bush and Gore. Um, it was a cold open and they were like, uh, you know, the election hangs in the balance and Florida hasn't been decided yet. So we have an announcement to make. We're just going to do it together. We're going to run the country (laughs) together. Yeah. We're going to split it. 
and then it was we ran a, a tape section that was it was the odd couple theme mm-hmm. and it was just the oval office and bush was in there and there was a mess and then gore came in and was fastidiously cleaning everything <laughs> up and it was like a fine idea yeah it was like i mean it was the big i mean more people probably watched that than anything else i've ever read yeah <laughs> it was like crazy because the whole world in times of crisis still mm-hmm. turns to that show for yeah. like for what's the take like mm-hmm. what's the what's the take yeah. of the country what's the mood of the country about politics mm-hmm. you know and i think lauren michaels has always been characterized as striving to create balance not look like the show is yeah going in one way or the other did that ever did you because I, I know i mean your politics are obviously very liberal sure. did that ever come into conflict with what you were wanted no. to do on the show it really didn't lauren's attitude is the show was forged in the boiling cauldron of uh, Watergate and his and the attitude of the show is we are skeptical of whoever's in power that's just the deal it doesn't matter what political party he or she is in we are we're skeptical and we make fun of the person in power that's the like that's the mo that's the 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 raison d'etre of SNL and um, I have no problem with that as mm-hmm. a philosophy I think that's a very good philosophy mm-hmm. I think it's part of what makes America America yeah. is that its art gets to take down its leaders mm-hmm. and it, it's not it's not hard to make fun of democrats yeah. <laughs> like even if you happen to side with them politically like they're as the good place committee shows like they yeah. have they're mm-hmm. ineffectual mm-hmm. frequently and they're ridiculous frequently so i mean my i took over weekend update in 2001 um as producing that segment and uh my first show was the 9-11 show yeah. the and first show back after yeah well, what it was, was it a, a week or two later it or? was t- probably three i think there was a show that we i think we were scheduled to go on and then mm-hmm. we delayed a week yeah um i can't remember exactly but like that was my first show and you know at the time and then i wrote uh with my friend matt murray and some other people wrote a bunch of sketches that were uh, parodies of that show hardball with chris mm-hmm. matthews and the formula for hardball sketches was Chris Matthews is insane and Daryl played him. And then it would be like, there'd be one Democrat and one Republican. And then a third person who was just like a crazy person. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did one, John McCain hosted the show and, uh, and we had Rachel Dratch playing an ACLU lawyer. Mm-hmm. I am a card carrying member of the ACLU. I give them money every year, but it was basically McCain um, playing the attorney general saying like, we're not going to be happy until there's a chip in everyone's brain that responds to this remote control <laughs> I have in my hand, like arguing for surveillance. Mm-hmm. And then Dratch was, uh, they're, they're talking about Guantanamo Bay, I think. And Dratch's character was like, we, we should arm the terrorists. We should give the terrorists <laughs> guns because who will police, who will police the police? My answer is the terrorists. Yeah. Let's let the terrorists police the, our military. Mm-hmm. And so, and like that was the, you know, human rights abuses aside for a second, a crazy thing to say, Mm -hmm. there were people at the time who were like, we shouldn't be doing, we shouldn't be like investigating anything. We shouldn't, we should like, we should be just have like a sort of, you know, um, our approach should be like, let's just try to understand everyone better or Mm -hmm. something. And it was like, well, there are, there's like a, there's like a a war going on and we need to like, so whatever the, whatever the, um, attitudes are the prevailing attitudes are the show attacks those attitudes mm-hmm. and that is a good mo i think yeah. for i think TV the show. one thing that may have tested that a little bit is when trump uh, hosted uh, during the well during that's the a primary. different story because that because they 
I mean, that was a critical error, and yeah. many, many critical errors were made in mm -hmm. 2016. Having him host was a critical error because it was it wasn't attacking him; it was tacitly endorsing his right. existence yeah. and 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 normalizing his attitudes and behavior. And I think you know the SNLs also always strive to stay relevant and. Lauren likes it when like whoever the the mo the people that are being talked about in the culture mm -hmm. come on the show. That's right. the deal. Yeah. And I think he, most people were, and he was too, was kind of blindsided by the fact that like that, that that's can backfire. Like it's never backfired really that way before. Mm -hmm. Like it's one thing when Nancy Kerrigan is attacked and right. then she hosts the show because like everyone's talking about Nancy Kerrigan. Let's get Nancy mm -hmm. Kerrigan on the show. Trump was a different story and it was a mistake. Yeah. I think no one would say it wasn't mm. a mistake to have to like put that guy in the show and make it seem like, oh, he's just another person that's being talked about in the culture because yeah. that's not what he was. I think maybe if he had done a cameo like other candidates had in the past in one sketch, it would have been a little different. Or yeah. I think even people would have gotten mad about that too. I mean, the problem was he had already come out the day he announced he was president, he was like, Mexicans are bad and we're, yep. we, and mm -hmm. um, they're rapists. And that should have been disqualifying. Like mm -hmm. at that point, it should have been like, yeah, sorry. If you, yeah. if you, if you're that unreasonable a person, you don't get to be a part of our thing that we're doing yeah. here. Like, yeah. and you know, that there was that, there was the Fallon uh, yeah. appearance was a mm -hmm. mistake. Like there was a, but I mean, but you know, it, by the way, it's not just them. Like Colbert had, um, what's his name on the, at the Emmys, um, Sean Spicer, Sean Spicer. Yeah. Like that was a huge mistake. And yep. when, and mm -hmm. when that happened, I was like, no, what do you, yeah. Stephen, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, that's not like, I think people were still running the old playbook, which mm -hmm. was, um, which was like, uh, like we're, yes, they're extreme, uh, in their beliefs, but like, we're st it's still okay to kind of like bring them into the tent and and give them airtime uh because ultimately the country is reasonable and we'll see them for what they are mm -hmm. but it just they just kept coming like they just they they didn't relent like they didn't um they, it didn't change their behavior mm -hmm. and so what ended up happening was it seemed like they they got normalized that's the only word for it like yeah. that their attitudes got normalized in a way that i don't think they should have yeah uh, one more thing that I was just going to touch on from the post 9-11 show is that was the famous Rudy Giuliani uh, joke in the in the monologue. Great joke. Uh, Wonderful joke. How do you do you think about that any differently now? Or could you have imagined where uh, where he has ended up? Uh, I don't know what happened to that guy. I mean, that guy, you know, I, I will say this living in New York on 9-11. I loved that guy. Like he really was inspiring and the way that he was moving around the city and like holding things together at a time when it felt like the whole world was falling apart. I was, I would have voted for Giuliani happily if he mm. had run for mayor after that. He really did the, that city an incredible service in the intervening 20 years. He has lost his mind. Yeah. He has gone off the deep end like 50 different times. And so it, but even, even though he's now a straight up loon, I don't, I still can't bring myself to retroactively be upset at him mm -hmm. because at the time, mm -hmm. the things he was doing for New York were so meaningful and made so many people feel better and safe and, and good. And it, and it, I think maybe the reason was it wasn't political. Like he wasn't, yeah. he wasn't out there saying like, we got to go attack these guys mm -hmm. or like, we got to, I didn't want to blow up some stuff. He was just like, here's how the MTA is going to work. Here's what we're doing over here. We've mm -hmm. locked this down. Like 
here's where the first responders are going and we this is up and running and we got to do that it was it was all like save the city save the city yeah and it was very comforting so uh i i can compartmentalize with mm-hmm. that guy yeah. even though now when i see him i'm i'm i, I feel like i want to vomit <laughs> <laughs> could a reboot of the office actually happen that's up next on the last laugh so we alluded to this a little bit before, but you uh, you famously played Moe's Schrute on The Office. Yes, thank you for bringing um, that up. How did that uh, How did that happen? <laughs> um, so it was part of the backstory of Dwight Schrute that he had he was sort of a, from a Germanic family, Pennsylvania Dutch, maybe um, that he maybe had a wing of his family that was either Amish or Amish adjacent, and we were talking about that. Uh, in the room and there had been a reality show called Amish in the city Mm -hmm. that was on for only one year. And the, the awful premise of this show was a bunch of moron LA club kids was on spring break and they were moving into like a house in the Hollywood Hills and they didn't know why they didn't know what was going to happen or who they're, they were just told they would have some roommates and their roommates turned out to be a group of Amish people (laughs) on Rumspringer. And they and they were like, no, what the hell, man? Like they just <laughs> lost their minds. And one of the Amish people was named Mose, and he was this lovely, kind man, um, young man who had a, a neck beard and mm-hmm. a sort of a low kind of like resonant voice, and um, was very sweet. And as a, like a gesture of goodwill for his new roommates, like made them all little wooden toys and gave them to them. And it was, I was explaining how much I hated this show and how heartbreaking I thought it was and how cruel I thought it was to everyone involved. And I told the whole story and then Greg pointed at me and went, you're going to play Moe's. You're going to be Dwight's (laughs) cousin. And so, (laughs) so I wrote an, an episode early in the, in the second season where Michael's buying a condo and he makes a joke about Dwight and says, um, "You don't. What do you know about owning property? You don't own any property." And then Dwight has a talking head where he says, "I actually do own property. I have a sixty-acre working beet farm <laughs> that I run with my cousin Mose." And as a joke, Greg was like, "You're going to play Mose." You're, and so I put on a fake neck beard. Mm-hmm. I actually, I think in the photo, it was just for a photo that they oh, showed, yeah. documentary style. I don't think I had a neck beard in the photo. I can't remember. But um, but then in the next season. Uh, we broke an episode where we went to the beet farm and mm-hmm. it was like, well, Moe's has to be there. Yeah. Greg made me uh, grow an actual neck beard. <laughs> and I don't have my, my natural beard growth is I don't grow any hair on my cheeks and yeah. I can't, can't grow a mustache. I can grow a full beard under my chin. Yeah, so perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Yes. Perfect <laughs> is the right word. So, <laughs> so he made me grow a real neck beard to be, to have an essentially a non-speaking role mm-hmm. in this show. Meanwhile, by the way, I pointed out to him a number of times, BJ and Mindy and Paul Lieberstein and all these people were like on the show and like yeah. had major characters where they basically got to play themselves mm-hmm. or some version of themselves. And like they all were writers who, who they were all writers and, and and like the show was like nominated for SAG Awards and like they <laughs> won a bunch of SAG Awards and stuff. And then I'm like a like a bearded freak who <laughs> doesn't get to talk. Whatever. Put that aside. So. I, I I did it. I was like, okay, fine, I'll do this because it's part of the joke, and I'm being ritualistically hazed, and that's fine. But th- it was supposed to be the first episode we shot, but then we had to change the script for some reason. I can't remember, and it ended up getting pushed, and so I had to have the neck beard for like 
11 more <laughs> weeks than I thought I did. And we shot it in like September, like an hour outside of LA. It was 125 degrees. Oh and God. it was like, and I was sweating. I was wearing wool clothes. <laughs> and, like, and, but also in that period of time, uh, the show got nominated for an Emmy and Greg and I and the other producers went around to a bunch of like Hollywoody events and a button our picture was taken a number of times. And so now if you Google me, the first like eight photos you see are me with a giant neck. Be- I mean, it's terrible. It That's was so terrible. Funny. And then the writers loved torturing me. Yeah, so every so opportunity going, they, going back, yeah. they could, they, including, but as you mentioned, yeah. the actual finale yeah. of the show. Yeah, it's great. Um, do you ever get recognized as Moe's out and about? I do, although not as much, thankfully not as much as I, you know, the show has had this crazy second yeah, wave. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, popularity. people must be seeing you constantly. So. Yeah, but without the <laughs> neck beard, it's less. Yeah. I'm, first of all, I'm 15 years older, but also without the mm-hmm. neck beard, I get recognized yeah. less than I, you would think. Yeah. With the insane popularity and, you know, you mentioned Peacock, I think there's been a lot of rumors that, uh, there could be some kind of reboot reunion something on peacock do you have any uh i have thoughts no about that? i have no intel for you um I, I mean i think like i don't think anyone would ever do that without greg's at least blessing mm-hmm. if not um outright uh participation yeah um unless he just was like yeah go do whatever you want mm-hmm. i mean ricky gervais and stephen merchant had a really wonderful attitude because as i'm sure you remember the announcement that there was going to be an American version of this was met with yeah. a loud yeah. thud from the. Yeah, critical I remember community. thinking, "Oh, that's a terrible, a terrible idea." idea. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, that's what I thought. Like that's, that's what everyone thought. Um, but Ricky and Steven had this lovely attitude, which was like, "Sure, go nuts!" Like mm-hmm. we made our thing. Yeah, we, there's DVDs of it. They're on mm-hmm. our shelves. We can watch them whenever yeah. we want. Like this won't retroactively mm-hmm. hurt our version. So I, I suppose Greg could and and Steve and everyone else involved could potentially have that attitude which mm-hmm. is like go crazy yeah um but it's just hard to imagine i mean greg put so much thought and care into that show i mean the reason it turned out not to be a terrible idea was greg daniels mm-hmm. in a nutshell and it's not it's it's way harder than it seems yeah. um to do that to do that premise well mm-hmm. and so it would take a heroic effort from if it's not him, it would take a, a, an incredibly thoughtful and careful person to execute it properly. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. We'll see. Um, you you got to work a couple times with uh, Joe Biden on yeah. Parks and Rec. Why was he the, the object of Leslie Nope's uh, great affection? Well, uh, for one thing, he's a stone-cold fox. He's older now, but go look at Joe Biden <laughs> when he's like in his 40s and 50s. He's a stone-cold fox. Um, and also his... His attitude, uh, his sort of political attitude and worldview is was very populist, and he loved he loves Amtrak and he loves kind of um, he's a he's kind of a fighter, you know he's like a he's like a kind of a scrappy fighter for for um, for the middle class mm-hmm. um, that's been his like thing his whole career, and so it just became this running joke that Leslie was like there's a, one of my favorite jokes we did on the show was in an episode where Anne is helping Leslie set up an online dating profile. And she says, what's your ideal, describe your ideal man. And she says, the brain of George Clooney and the body of Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, ju- it was just like a joke that someone pitched. I don't remember who it was. Somebody pitched like she would be totally, she would totally have a crush on Joe Biden. Yeah. And we threw in that one joke. And then as these things often happen, we just threw in 50 more. Mm-hmm. And then eventually when we did a storyline where Ben Wyatt was in Washington, D.C., we were like, well, we should try to get Joe Biden. And we got in touch with his people, and they had seen the show, his staff had seen the show, 
And I think they really liked the fact that there was a character on TV who was talking about how sexy Joe Biden mm-hmm. was. And Joe was in yeah, his... I think she did him some favors. She so. did, yeah. When Joe was in his late 60s or whatever, um, was talking about how uh, sexy he was. And so he did two cameos on the show. He did yeah. one in that season and one in the in the finale. Biden, you must be Leslie No. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. You're... My, my, my name just came out of your mouth. Well, yeah, it did. <laughs> well... This isn't happening. This, this isn't real. No, it's it's happening, and I'm delighted to have you here. On behalf of the president and myself, I oh, want to... Oh, Mr. Vice President, I am deeply flattered, but there's no way that I could take over Madam Secretary Clinton's position. I mean... I'm confident you could do that job or any other, but Okay, the reason, I will. <laughs> but, well, the reason you're here is, I'm told, you've done such a great job in your town and in the state of Indiana, and I just want to say congratulations for your public service. And I just want to say thank you. Well, you, you, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Okay. You're, you're, you're very welcome. You're, you. you're very handsome. I think we're all done. Well, you're very nice. Okay, but thank, you're thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much. We'll see you tomorrow. Well, oh, well you will? Thank you, Mr. Vice President. You're, you're welcome. You don't let anything happen to him. Do you understand me? He is precious cargo. We're going to end by asking a question that I ask uh, a lot of people on the show. Um, who's a person who you've worked with who makes you laugh the hardest when you're when you're with them? Oh man, like not on screen, off screen, off screen. Yeah, boy, oh boy, um, there are many. Um, the maybe the my favorite part of my career over the last twenty years has been that aspect of it was mm-hmm. meeting all of these people. They're like Jason Manzukas comes to mind mm-hmm, and Jenny mm-hmm. Slate is another one who like are as quick and funny off camera as they are on it. Um, Polar, Polar makes me laugh the harder than maybe anyone. Yeah. Um, I mean, Maya Rudolph, I think Maya, I think Maya Rudolph might be the funniest person <laughs> in the world. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't know that there's anyone who does as many th- different kinds of things to make me laugh as mm-hmm. she does, both on screen and off. Uh, Nick Kroll is another one. Um, ben Schwartz is, yeah. is You've worked insane. with some incredible uh, yeah. comedians. So. Yeah. Um, there are, like, um, uh, there, are, there are so many mm-hmm. um Sandberg is amazing. Sandberg is so funny. <laughs> God, he's so funny. I mean, that like that is the the best thing about SNL is it's nothing but funny people. Like yeah. everybody's funny, and I like so I started from there. Like mm-hmm. when I was interviewing at SNL, I we went we were walking around in pairs, mm-hmm. and I um I was I was right out of college. I had no business getting hired there, and I I remember thinking like, oh, I'm I'm never getting this job because this woman that I'm paired up with is a thousand times funnier than I am. And it was Tina Fey (laughs) and uh, I was right. And, (laughs) and she, she got hired in July of that year and I didn't in July of 97 Mm. or whatever, August of 97. And I remember thinking like when I heard that she had gotten hired and I hadn't, I was like, yes, that's correct. Good job. You made (laughs) the right choice. But I also remember thinking when I went to work there, I was like, I wonder if everybody is as funny as, as Tina Fey is. And the answer is not everybody is because there are very few people who are as funny as Tina Fey, right. but everyone is funny. Like, yeah. There are like Emily Spivey was also a writer there mm. um, who later wrote on Parks and Rec with yeah. me. And she's like, she's mind blowingly funny. Like yeah. the, the number of funny people that I've worked with since day one of my professional mm. career is, uh, is absurd. It's a, yeah. it's a real bounty. You're very lucky. I am, man. I'm telling you, luck, <laughs> luck, 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 luck.
<laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Michael Schur for inviting us into his office and being so generous with his time today. The final few episodes of The Good Place are airing on NBC Thursday nights this month. Their big one-hour series finale will air on Thursday, January 30th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 Central. I seriously can't wait to see what they come up with. If you like this show, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram. The Last Laugh is distributed by Himalaya Media for The Daily Beast. It is produced by Jason Smith and Scott Porch for Starburns Audio and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're really into this podcast thing, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.